I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of very special Empire Spoiler Podcasts. This one is dedicated to the latest film from Steven Spielberg, Empire's legend of our lifetime. A director has had some pretty decent success over the last five decades or so. Uh, never topped Columbo though, did he? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we are, of course, talking about Ready Player One, based on the best-selling novel by Ernest Klein, who co-wrote the screenplay along with Zach Penn, and you'll be hearing from Ernest Klein very, very soon. But taking you through the next hour or so after that are two massive Spielberg fans. We have James Dyer, who has seen some films by Steven Spielberg. I have seen one or two. It's true. It's good, good. You're qualified. Yes. Credentials established. And then a man who has forgotten more about Steven Spielberg than most of us will ever know. Uh, he wrote a book on Steven Spielberg, The Incomplete Spielberg, uh, available in all bargain basement bins in charity shops. Uh, needs a second volume. Been on set of many Spielberg films. You've interviewed the man many, many times. Yes. You've lived in his house unbeknownst to him for a period of six to eight weeks. Yeah, we don't mention that. <laughs> it is, of course, Ian Freer. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I think I've seen everything Steven Spielberg has professionally directed. I've seen like every Coen Brothers film, but I'm mm-hmm. sure there are things by the Coen Brothers I haven't seen. Yeah. Because with Spielberg, I think I've seen everything. My favourite is Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Jurassic Park. I think that's great. <laughs> The one with the dinosaurs. It's brilliant. It's going to be a very testing 40 minutes for you in, isn't oh, it? Okay. <laughs> it's going to be yeah, tough. Exactly. Trapped in a room with two yeah, absolute yeah. idiots. You spilling the burg and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Which one of us is Alfred Molina in Raiders? <laughs> <laughs> Which one's Harrison Ford? Uh, is there a third guy in Raiders? There is, isn't there? This guy gets killed really early on. What, Branca? Yeah. Yeah, Vic, Vic Tablian plays Branca and he also right. plays the monkey man. <laughs> Amazing. Double trouble. Amazing. See, that's the sort of Spielberg knowledge that you are here to provide. Good. As we talk about Ready Player One, which which is out in cinemas right now. And, of course, as I said earlier on, it's based on Ernest Cline's best-selling novel. He co-wrote the screenplay with Zach Penn. And when he came into London to talk about the film a couple of weeks ago, we jumped at the chance to send along Ben Travis to have a good old natter with Ernest Cline. And, of course... It goes without saying by now, but I will say it just in case. This is a spoiler special podcast. We are going to be digging deep into Ready Player One and answering your questions as well uh, from from this moment on. Okay, so from the Ernest Client interview onwards, we get into it. Third act reveals the ending, the big sequence in the middle that, you know, is good old big sequence. Well, I like that sequence. Uh, so if you haven't seen Ready Player One, then high knee to your nearest cinema or your nearest virtual reality goggle kit and uh, and just plug yourself in. Watch the movie and then come back and all the spoilers will be yours. Right, have they gone? Brilliant. On we go. Here we go. Ernest Klein talking to Ben Travis about Ready Player One. Enjoy. So I'm thrilled to be joined on the Empire Podcast Spoiler Special for Ready Player One by the author of the book, the co-producer and the co-writer of the script, Ernest Klein. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty great. I, I imagine you must be. Um, <laughs> a couple of years ago, you, you wrote a book that was massively influenced by Steven Spielberg. And now, these few years later, he has made a film of your book. Can you tell me a little bit about your first meeting with him and the first time you discussed Ready Player One together? Um, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was one of the greatest days of my life. Uh, 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 he, uh, invited me to come and, uh, meet with him at Amblin Pictures, uh, which is a kind of a place that I'd always dreamed of, of visiting, uh, and had seen pictures of and seen, you know, in interviews, but had never actually been there. So, 
Uh, I remember telling people that I uh, felt like Charlie Bucket, uh, you know, clutching his golden ticket, going to meet Willy Wonka for the first time. Uh, and Amblin was like, you know, like the his uh, magical chocolate factory of movie making and their film props. And, uh, uh, you know, when you walk into Amblin, you pass this wishing well. Uh, and it's the wishing well from Back to the Future that Marty and his siblings are leaning against uh, in the photo that slowly fades away. So right there, I'm like, oh, this is the place. And, you know, there's Velociraptor. Uh, maquettes made by Stan Winston in the foyer. And then I walked into his office and sat down and I'm waiting um, uh, uh, for him to come in. And I look up on the wall uh, and realize there's a sled mounted on the wall and it's Rosebud uh, from Citizen Kane, (laughs) the Rosebud. So, um, which we end up mentioning in Ready Player One uh, Mm -hmm. briefly. So, uh, and then he came in, you know, and I think everybody probably who has met him for the past 30 years, it's, you know, they come in and they're, they're shaking and they just had their haircut and their wardrobe is overthought and it's the biggest day of their life. And, uh, you know, I think he senses that and he is just wonderful at setting you at ease and, uh, uh, letting you know, he's a, a, you know, just a regular human being like you. And, uh, immediately we started to talk about ready player one and, uh, uh, and his, all his enthusiasm for the book and, uh, for making this movie all just came out and, you know, I connected with him just as like a fellow cinephile, a fellow <laughs> movie lover, uh, you know, uh, and then occasionally I would remember, oh, I'm talking to Steven Spielberg, <laughs> get nervous <laughs> again. But eventually that feeling goes away because he's such a wonderful collaborator and such a kind, uh, generous person. You see why he is Steven Spielberg. You know, he, uh, uh, you want to do your best for him, you know, because he believes in you and, uh, and you believe in him. And it's, it was just the best collaborative experience I've ever had. And when we started talking about uh, – um, Ready Player One uh, and started talking about using the DeLorean and that he had gotten he had called Bob Zemeckis and gotten <laughs> permission from Bob to use it. Uh, that was when I pulled out my glove box lid for my own DeLorean uh, that I bought <laughs> and I had brought all the way to California uh, and uh, pulled it out and said, hey, would you sign this for me? And um, uh, he did. He wrote, uh, Dear Ernie, where we're going, we don't need roads. Amazing. Steven Spielberg. And uh, then I asked him if he had ever signed a DeLorean before and he said, he had not. So I have the first DeLorean time machine ever signed by Steven Spielberg. So that was what my first meeting with him was like. And from our perspective, one of the first things that we heard about the the kind of adaptation that was going to be happening uh, was that with Spielberg doing it, he was not as interested in referring to some of his own back catalogue of films, which do feature quite kind of heavily uh, through, through various elements of the book. Um, h- how did you feel about that? And how did that kind of spur you on when you were writing the script to think... This needs to be something different. Yeah. Well, you know, um, people always say that his his movies are referenced heavily uh, in the book, but mm-hmm. he's really only mentioned three times and they're in passing, you know, mm-hmm. at, like they're arguing about Lady Hawk and uh, H says, I don't care if Spielberg directed it, you know, uh, little moments like that. The only actual direct reference to his movies is uh, Wade carrying the grail diary uh, Mm -hmm. throughout the story. Uh, And that was something he considered putting in. And that was really the only thing that was from his movies. That was uh, essential part of the plot that he decided to not do Mm because he felt like it would stop the story because he was referencing himself. But there are other, you know, similar direct references like the uh, T-Rex that are right there. It just lasts for a few seconds and it doesn't stop the story at all. It gets Mm -hmm. you excited uh, and it's not too self-aggrandizing. I think it's just a fun moment. So that was, I think, um, you know, I'm so happy with all the changes that he made that I don't feel like he lost anything. And I also, you know, tell people like if you're worried about the lack of Steven Spielberg references, you know, this whole movie is a new Steven Spielberg movie that Mm -hmm. will be referenced, you know, until the end of time. We don't need... 
to be that meta and have Steven Spielberg references, uh, a lot of them inside our new Steven Spielberg movie. Mm-hmm. Like I've, you know, and the whole, you know, uh, spirit of the story, you know, is still, still captured. And it's a very Amblin-esque story, you know, inspired by movies that I grew up, uh, watching like E.T. and the Goonies. Uh, uh, it's that kind of story, uh, inspired by Steven. So the inspiration of Steven Spielberg is more thematic and it's mm-hmm. all still there. Um, so how did you make a start on the script? Did did you know from the beginning of, of adapting it what you could use, what you couldn't use? Or was there an element of kind of getting the big stuff locked down and then kind of working out along the way what else you could pull in? Um, it was a long process and started with me working on it alone before Zach or Steven or really anybody else was attached. I The thing is, I sold the book rights and the film rights in a 48-hour period, uh, uh, like a year before the book was published. And I wrote three full drafts of the screenplay adaptation before Ready Player One even came out. So I couldn't, you know, when I was working on it, I couldn't point to it being a bestseller yet or even being or much less an international bestseller. So I didn't have as much leverage to maintain the story and they didn't know how the story was going to be received yet. So uh, I felt like I was being uh, uh, pushed to move it further and further away from my book, which I, you know, I knew things would have to change. Uh, even from that process of working on it, because so much of what I had done in the novel would not work in a movie, yeah. like having someone stand at a Pac-Man game or reenact the Dungeons and Dragons module. Those things work in the book, but would not work in a uh, uh, in a movie that's you know meant to be enjoyed by you know everyone. We didn't mm-hmm. want to. I couldn't. We couldn't drill down quite as much in the main plot, but all you know there are still references to Dungeons and Dragons, you know, hidden throughout the uh, film, but they're just not brought to the foreground. So. I feel like all the, um, you know, uh, uh, it wasn't until Stephen came on board uh, as the director and announced himself as a huge fan of the book and mm-hmm. wanting to make a lot of changes to bring it back to the book that that's when, you know, that's when I stopped being anxious about the changes and started being excited uh, about all of them because I knew he has an amazing record with book to film adaptations, <laughs> you know, uh, and all my favorite book to film adaptations have required uh, huge changes from the source material, you know, fans who go into a book to film adaptation expecting to have the same exact experience that they had when reading the book is that is a fool's errand and has never mm-hmm. happened once uh, in history. Because when you read a book, it plays out in your mind's eye and you dress all the sets and cast all the roles and deliver all the dialogue and do all the special effects. It's all you bring your own sensibilities to the story. So it's always going to fit better, you know, uh, and be your unique vision of the story uh, and uh, a movie is always going to be different from that and have to abbreviate the story you mm-hmm. have you know much less time to tell the story and have to tell it in a much more accelerated way so um, uh, I knew all of that was uh, going to happen and then once Stephen came on board I was happy to make the changes because they all uh, you know captured the spirit of what was in my book but still uh, uh, made it more cinematic and it was just the best the best experience I could you could have so Along that theme, um, let's let's break it down, kind of task by task of, of those three major tasks mm-hmm. um, that that Parzival and Artemis have to, to kind of overcome. Um, so, especially the the first two are pretty different to, yes. to what's in the book. So, you referenced uh, the first one in the book is the Dungeons and Dragons quest. Yes, uh, and in the film, it's the epic race that uh, that is obviously in the trailers as well. Yes. Um, so. You mentioned there are still Dungeons and Dragons references through the the screenplay, uh, but was it ever an option 
to to keep that first task as Dungeons and Dragons. And when you did decide that that wouldn't work, how did you come uh, across the idea of the race? Um, uh, I don't, you know, I think in one of my drafts, I had, uh, uh, tried to execute the tomb of horrors, but, uh, you know, no one who read the script had ever <laughs> played the tomb of horrors mm-hmm. and it just, and I knew that most of the people who watched the movie, like the vast majority of them would never have played Dungeons and Dragons or, uh, that specific tomb of horrors module. And so, um, uh, and it was just too kind of inside baseball to start out the story that way. Um, and we wanted something that was, you know, like showed the off like the first challenge you wanted it to show off the potential of the oasis mm-hmm. and to just be visually uh stunning and uh you know and i think it was uh uh in conversations with uh our producer dan farah uh who's from new jersey and spent a lot of time in new york and came up with the idea of a, a road race in new york mm-hmm. and zach loved that and then and from that point it just continued to develop and it wasn't until steven came on board that that sequence really kind of took off and started to think about all the different obstacles and the visual uh, geography of the race and all the different things we can include. And I love that because it, you know, it's mentioned in the book that you can have any kind of vehicle that you want and any kind of avatar that you want. Uh, and Wade does have a DeLorean, uh, uh, with a kit scanner on the front, uh, just like in the movie, but he only kind of drives it to the distracted globe and you never see it again. He never really uses it. Whereas here he gets to use it much more, you know, he uses it in the race and then he uses it in the end battle. Uh, but also by having the DeLorean, uh, in the race, you get to see it. Sh- it immediately shows you the potential of the Oasis. Like, oh, I can have any avatar mm-hmm. uh, from any character in history or my own unique uh, character uh, like Parzival. And I can have any vehicle, you know, uh, uh, and then take it on a race uh, where uh, physics don't apply and anything could happen. And the obstacles look photorealistic and you have to race past King Kong and the Tyrannosaurus Rex, mm-hmm. all of that. It just, I just loved it and could see how Steven was going to knock it out of the park. And even from the previs, I could tell it was going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that's kept evolving all the way through, uh, even post-production. Uh, you know, I remember, uh, Adam Stockhouse and our amazing production designer, you know, talking with me, he's like, okay, so we're now we're, we're working on the race and the background of the race. We want to have New York kind of filled with all these different, uh, you know, geographically impossible things that are, you know, references to maybe other films okay. shot in New York. Uh, and so that's why if you look in the background of the race, you'll see the silver cup sign from the end battle at Highlander. Uh, oh, yeah. You'll see like a marquee from uh, um, last action hero, uh, which is a reference that I snuck in. I'm a, oh, yeah. a huge fan of Zach's first movie that he made last action hero mm-hmm. helped inspire uh, the flick sinks in my novel. The idea of going into your favorite movie and using your knowledge of that, uh, film or the genre to survive and navigate your way through it that uh, uh, Zach helped inspire that. So I wanted to, you know, he didn't want to reference himself. So I did it without his knowledge. And he didn't, <laughs> he didn't find out about it until he saw the finished shot. And he's like, what? There's a last action hero reference, Ernie. So uh, I love that, you know, but they're also, I think in some way there might be, uh, I, I haven't had a chance to go frame by frame with mm-hmm. this movie yet, but I think there might be a, um, uh, uh, the tenement house from batteries not included uh, okay. might be somewhere in the landscape and the Ghostbusters firehouse and the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, I think Dana Barrett's uh, also tenement building from Ghostbusters, lots of things from the warriors and other films shot in New York are kind of hidden throughout the whole wow. landscape. And I, you know, uh, even Steven, uh, and I and Zach don't know all the Easter eggs hidden in the mm-hmm. movie. Stephen was saying in Austin uh, that it was during his final run through. He spotted a gremlin in one <laughs> shot that ILM had snuck in there without asking oh, really? him, you know, and he's like, all right, leave it in. But like there was a lot of like 
referencing his stuff in the background without him knowing it because he would, you know, he would kind of uh, uh, ax any direct references that he yeah. found out about. Did, did you personally sneak any Spielberg references into the background? Uh, you know, I uh, uh, I did. Um, uh, uh, well, there was the uh, the batteries not included thing was mm-hmm. my uh, suggestion. Um, the uh, 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 I made some. Goonies uh, references. We had a restaurant in the stacks. At the mm-hmm. base of the stacks, there were businesses, but I don't know how much of them you can see in the finished film. But one of them was called Fratelli's oh, okay. uh, Diner. Little stuff like that. But mm-hmm. you know, uh, I feel like the Stephen references that uh, uh, I love the most in the movie are the thematic Amblin moments yeah. of you know, of like Wade laying on his washer dryer uh, up in the stacks and looking out the window. And like longing for a better life. And uh, that reminds me of this scene in E.T. where Elliot is uh, doing dishes and the steam is rising and he's looking out his window and dreaming of a better life away from his broken home. And, you know, it's just uh, that's one of the movies that inspired me to write this movie. And now the guy who inspired that moment is the one who executed it. It's just too perfect. And like you mentioned before, one of the bigger Spielberg references that is in there is the T-Rex. And then obviously you've got uh, King Kong in the race as well. Yes. And how early on did you know that you'd get to play with those guys? (laughs) Can you tell me a bit about, uh, was it difficult to clear those? Were those ones you were really gunning for? Or were those kind of from an array of options that you knew you could pull? You know, so much of that was, uh, was, uh, Steven. He was like, let's have King Kong, you know, let's have a, uh, T-Rex, you know, let's have, uh, um, uh, uh, that was a collaborative effort. And some of it came from, uh, ILM. Some came from Adam Stockhausen. Some came from Steven and Zach and me. It was just really a team, uh, effort. And I don't know at what point, you know, uh, I think Steven just decided let's go after King Kong and then, mm-hmm. you know, got it. And he's a big King Kong, uh, 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 geek too. I remember talking with him about Peter Jackson. We were both being envious and talking about Peter Jackson's King Kong collection. And he has like an original Kong grenade from the first movie. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so, uh, 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 I love that stuff. Cause it's like Steven watching Steven Spielberg geek out too, you know, yeah. cause he's such a huge enthusiast, just like I am. And, so after that um, first task in the book, yes. um, oh, sorry, in the, in the film, that is when uh, Wade meets Samantha for the first time. But yes. in the book, they don't meet face to face until the end. Can you tell me a bit about the decision to, to bring that forward? Yes. Well, uh, I think in the movie they meet, well, they meet in the Oasis first mm-hmm. in H's uh, after that first race. and uh, yeah. They meet as avatars, which um, is the same time that they meet as avatars in the book is right yeah. after that first challenge, at the end of the first challenge. So their real world, or their Oasis meeting is the same, but their real world meeting happens much sooner. And that's kind of in the uh, uh, middle of the second act when mm-hmm. they meet in the real world. And it's after... Uh, uh, after Sorrento blows up Wade's stack and then he gets kidnapped. And that is a change. But that, again, that was a uh, a decision uh, that I think serves her character. We mm-hmm. talked about the idea of having it be like the book where you don't meet her to the end. And it works in the book because you still meet her through Wade and get to know her through Wade's uh, eyes. Uh, but I think in the film, it would have robbed her character, you know, and robbed the audience of getting to know her character and Olivia's amazing performance in the movie. Like, um, you know, it works better for the movie to meet her earlier, you know, and not hold off and meeting her in the real world until the end. And it, uh, you know, and her character, you know, it's one of the uh, my, you know, most enjoyable things for me. You know, this is my first novel and it was also the first person told in a first person narrative, which yep. is restrictive. It helped me organize this giant sprawling story by anchoring it with one person's perspective. So I just had to keep track of what Wade 
new and uh, that was really the only way I could get through it. But it was restrictive in, you know, what I was able to have the other characters do. They had to do a lot of it off screen. Mm-hmm. Like in the uh, in the novel, as well as the movie, Artemis is the first one to clear the second challenge yeah. uh, before anyone else. I wanted her to be smart and independent and just as smart as if not smarter than the male characters mm-hmm. and always intended for, you know, Wade could never have won this contest on his own. It's through working with his friends, you know, and uh, Artemis and H and Dido and Shoto that that uh, uh, through this collaboration and this team up that they're able to to pull it off. So um, that was, you know, uh, uh, another conscious decision for her character, like having her be the one who gets indentured by IOI yeah. uh, instead of Wade. You know, again, it's something that happens exactly as it does in the novel, but it happens to a different character. And that works great because now Wade is on the outside, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 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 fighting the battle. And she's the one on the inside who brings down the shield as opposed to having Wade do everything the way he yep. does in the novel. I think it's more balance uh, to the characters and gives her more agency and uh, play a bigger role uh, while also still capturing the spirit of what's in the book. So let's let's talk about task two, which sure. um, is them going into The Shining, which is one of the most fun kind of sequences I've <laughs> yeah. seen in the cinema in a long time. That is, is such, a good, uh, such a good moment. Yeah. So various things to unpack from this how firstly how did you settle on the shining um were there hoops to jump through to get that was that something you knew you could do uh, tell me a bit about that choice uh well initially we had talked about blade runner and the void mm-hmm. comp test which is in the novel uh and steven loved blade runner had visited the set of blade runner uh friends with ridley scott um uh, and warner brothers owns blade runner uh but uh the rights uh, uh to blade runner are not uh, are a little bit complicated and they weren't mm-hmm. able to get permission to do it um, uh, for due to due to uh, complication legal complications. So okay. um, uh, then we started to think about other movies to go into. Monty Python didn't seem right, you know, because we wanted something that was visually unique, you know. And you go into the environment of this movie and immediately like sense that you know you're inside this movie. And War Games, you know, I love doing that in the novel, but again, didn't quite work for. Uh, uh, you know, and we, I love the idea of changing up the challenges to surprise readers of the book. Mm-hmm. And the reason I love The Shining, uh, The Shining just works on a bunch of different levels. But we started to make um, a, a list of other potential 80s movies, uh, you know, and, and we thought horror movies might be good. Uh, but then once we like zeroed in on, oh, what, what Stanley Kubrick movies were released in the 80s, and it was just Full Metal Jacket and The Shining. And then mm-hmm. once Steven saw The Shining, it was all over. He got so excited. Uh, and so did Janusz Kaminski, uh, because they are the biggest Kubrick Shining fanboys I've ever met. And that was so much fun for me because and Zach, because that was when we got to see our hero start to geek out, mm-hmm. you know, about someone that he loved. Uh, and respected who inspired him and, and watching him pay tribute to them. That was just the most fun ever. So then, you know, that again was a huge collaborative effort between me and Zach and Steven of, of taking different moments and atmospheric elements of the shining and uh, working them into create kind of a fun house, you know, uh, where you feel like the characters are trapped in, in this uh, hyper stylized, uh, uh, you know, virtual version of the movie. And, um, that was just a blast. And one of the reasons I love it is because it's all about a creator who hates his own creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Stephen King, uh, hating uh, being the author of a novel and hating all the changes <laughs> that Stanley Kubrick <laughs> made uh, to his not to his book. But even though it's his most celebrated film adaptation and mm-hmm. probably always will be, Stephen King hated it so much. He went and made a TV movie version of The Shining that is more accurate uh, to his novel. So uh, I love that. And I hope that fans of the book who are like sitting there pissed off about the 
the changes uh, from the book, like see that this is this meta moment where we're changing it up and making it different for the movie. Uh, but changes for a movie can be good and surprise you, even if you're a fan of the book. I think mm-hmm. you can love both uh, and appreciate, you know, a cinematic retelling of a story that you adore. It doesn't have to be exactly the same. But, you know, there is still Peter Jackson uh, people pissed at Peter Jackson for cutting po- Tom Bombadil out of yeah. Lord of the Rings, and they'll never get over it. So I'm 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 prepared for that as well. And so, like you mentioned in in the book, there are moments where they go into their favorite films, mm-hmm. but it's all about reading the lines along as they happen. Yes. W- once you decided on The Shining, how did you decide uh, what they were going to do when they got in there? Yeah. Well, I always kind of knew that the the movie okey, uh, you know, reciting dialogue thing again, something that would work in the book, but would get real tiresome real quick. Uh, in a movie. Um, and, uh, and so we decided pretty quickly that we'd better just to recreate the environment. Uh, uh, and especially the Overlook Hotel is kind mm. of a contained world with very unique uh, visual uh, and spatial, uh, you know, uh, uh, geography that was um, uh, very familiar to anyone who loves movies. So um, uh, it's all just uh, I don't know. From the beginning, as soon as we hit upon it, it just seemed perfect. And the more we worked on it uh, and zoned in on which elements to use, uh, it ended up uh, 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 just being the most fun that I've uh, some of the most fun I've ever had collaborating mm-hmm. with anyone. And you really go in on it as well because uh, I, I was really surprised even that you went to room two three seven. Oh, on the most terrifying to. moments. Yeah, in the, in the you. Film. Ha- yeah, you Did you ever to. talk about how far you could push that in terms of this being a twelve A film? And yeah, well, yeah. I mean, there was uh, uh, the um, the the naked woman in two thirty seven. Uh, uh, you. Uh, 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 you see a little bit more of her body in <laughs> earlier yeah. cuts, and I think we, that had to get um, uh, that had to get cut down uh, a little bit. But other than that, you know, and some of the zombie shots, we did want. Uh, uh, I'm surprised at how scary. And I still worry about my. I have a ten uh, year old daughter. I'm still worried about her watching <laughs> that part of it because uh, it's still pretty scary, even though it's kind of a toned down mm-hmm. uh, version of The Shining. So, but really, Stephen, you know, because of his uh, relationship uh, with Stanley Kubrick and their long friendship, and he's still friends with the family. And uh, 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 Stanley Kubrick's wife uh, came and visited the set mm-hmm. when they were shooting that stuff, and we had the two little girls, you know, uh, playing the twins, and they recreated that whole uh, hotel room from the Overlook. So, was that built as a set? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, then you know, kind of H doing mocap in it with the live action uh, woman in the bathtub and all of that was just, you know, so, uh, uh, and it's one of the most overanalyzed movies in history. So it's so much fun, you know, uh, to go into a movie that is so, so visually unique and beloved. So yeah, that's, you know, and just the meta nature of, you know, book to film adaptation, uh, going into a book to film adaptation in the midst of a book to film adaptation. Uh, and I have, but of course, you know, I have the opposite relationship, uh, uh, between, uh, Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick, uh, between me and Stephen is completely, you know, I'm not a creator who hates his own creation. I love this film adaptation. Yeah. Let's talk about the third task. So the, the castle is the one that's most similar between the book and the film. Yes. Um, and you even got Mechagodzilla who again appears in both. Um, yes. What was it about that character that you really wanted to get it in? Was it always available or did you have to fight for that? And, um, how did you pick, uh, Gundam and the Iron? giant as the other two uh 
Uh, well, yeah, Mechagodzilla was, you know, uh, in the book, and, and they try to get all of them from the book, you know, and H actually controls the Gundam in uh, the novel, mm-hmm. uh, the mobile suit Gundam. So the Gundam was in the book, too. Uh, and some of the other robots, you know, I had Parzival operating Leopardon from the Japanese Spider-Man, you know, uh, uh, again, pretty obscure uh, and works in the book, but I don't think anyone would recognize him. But mm-hmm. in Japan, uh, you know, they used to have, like, I think a 200-foot-tall Gundam uh, RX-78 to statue in Japan uh, uh, that you could visit. So he that is like one of their most uh, known uh, icons uh, 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 right up there with Ultraman. So um, I think that was uh, a natural choice to replace it. And we kind of gave we created an item uh, called the Gregarious 120 that lets you turn into any giant robot for two mm-hmm. minutes, which is similar to the beta capsule, you know, kind of a, a so because um, uh, we wanted it to have the same structural thing in the battle, the way that plays out and bringing the shield down and all of that uh, is the same. Uh, but, yeah, once we knew that we couldn't use Ultraman, then the Gundam kind of took on a bigger role. Uh, which is perfect, you know. I'm so jealous of Win Morisaki uh, uh, in this movie. He gets to drive the Mach 5 from Speed Racer, mm-hmm. uh, and then he gets to pilot a uh, Gundam uh, 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 and use a beam saber to uh, kick ass, kick Mechagodzilla's ass. It's, you know, uh, he's going to be a legend, I think, in Japan. They're so mm-hmm. excited in, uh, uh, when we showed this. But, um, yeah, so those, you know, uh, so I feel like, uh, you know, we reduced the number of giant robots uh, and changed, you know, uh, uh, kind of consolidated them. And, and, and instead of having five, we have kind of a mixture of the Iron Giant. And mm-hmm. But the Iron Giant, you know, is another one of my favorite choices. He's mentioned in the book as one of the robots you can select, but no one does uh, select him. But I put the Iron Giant in there because I'm friends with the screenwriter of the mm-hmm. Iron Giant, Tim McCandless, who lives in Austin, Texas. Uh, and we met and, uh, and become, became friends like 10 years ago. So I put this throwaway reference to Iron Giant in there. But then when we were reworking the story, Zach and Steven kind of seized upon that. And Warner Brothers owns the Iron Giant. And so the Iron Giant's role uh, grew uh, much larger. And that's made me so happy because now Brad Bird and Tim McCandless both are seeing this renaissance of their character. And uh, you know, people kind of found that on video. So when the movie mm-hmm. came out, it didn't get a big reaction. But uh, but now when people see it, there's something from their childhood and they just lose their minds. And getting to see him photorealistic in a battle, I think, uh, is going to make so many uh, 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 people happy. So, again, like a, a change kind of necessitated by the adaptation process that ended up being fortuitous and I think working mm-hmm. uh, wonderfully. And uh, and I love, you know, that video, that retro video game challenge of the Atari 2600 was always one of the most important to me because that Easter egg. Yeah, I it, wanted to mention yeah. that. Like, like the book, it, it all comes down at the end of the day to, to adventure, that mm-hmm. game. Um, did you always know that that's where the film was going to end to? And, and how did you how did you clear all of that? Uh, you know, I'd never I that was one thing I'm like, uh, you know, is are we going to see an old blocky Atari game on mm-hmm. the big screen in IMAX? Like, uh, is there any way that's going to happen? But, you know, I think Stephen knew that the, that, you know, and it was important to Zach. Well, Zach also had discovered that Easter egg when he was a kid. Uh, and so we both had a connection and there would be no Ready Player One if I hadn't found that very first video game Easter egg that Warren Robinette hid uh, uh, in Adventure. Then, you know, the whole idea of Halliday's Hunt kind of grew out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, it, it was always important to me and I wasn't sure, you know, if uh, we would stick to that. But somehow it made it through every draft of the script and is still there. You know, I still can't believe I'm like. 
in the middle of this, you know, giant battle, uh, we have characters stopping to play an old Atari game. And it makes me so happy, you know, because that's uh, especially since I've become friends with the creator mm-hmm. uh, of Adventure, Warren Robinette. He's going to come to the premiere in Los Angeles on Monday. His name is mentioned two or three times in the movie. And it's like, uh, again, I'm getting to celebrate someone who inspired me and now, you know, get to help cement their legacy in a Steven Spielberg movie. It's the coolest ever. Amazing. So one very last um, question. Uh, at the end, uh, when Wade is talking to Halliday uh, in the bedroom after all three tasks have been completed, he's got control of the Oasis. Um, Halliday reveals he's he's not um, an avatar. What is Halliday? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, and it's kind of left ambiguous in the story. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, Anorak uh, in the uh, novel is kind of described as a ghost in the machine. You mm-hmm. know, uh, a lot of Gunters, you know, uh, think that he's somehow uh, uh, perhaps an AI copy of Halliday uh, left to roam the Oasis, that he is left in charge of the contest. Uh, but it's never really explored, but it's hinted at. And, uh, you know, when uh, Steve and I were talking about that scene, you know, he asked me, you know, what do you think uh, Anorak is? And I told him, you know, and I told him uh, how I thought uh, uh, that might play into the sequel. And I think that's why he included it uh, uh, in the movie. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we're going to leave that a mystery uh, and open ended. But I do I will tell you that the sequel I've been working on like that, uh, it flows right into that. Have you spoken to, to Stephen about the possibility of him kind of working on the sequel? I have not. You know, he is so uh, he, he gave this movie his all. Uh, he says it's the third hardest movie he's ever made really? uh, after Jaws and Saving Private Ryan. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm just trying to give him a moment to breathe and relax before I, you know, uh, I, I would understand if he wouldn't want to go in once more into the breach. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, he, he seemed like he tells me he had a great time, even though it was one of the most challenging. Uh, projects of his life that he had a blast doing it so uh, you know if they do make a sequel I would love it if he would come back only Michael Crichton has been that lucky uh, to uh, uh, so you know fingers crossed amazing well um, congratulations on the film and thank you so much uh, Ernest Klein thank you for having me cheers okay so that was Ben Travis talking to Ernest Klein and now it is time for us to dig into Ready Player One for the next 40 minutes or so Uh, let's start off with a general Evaluation of the movie itself. Uh, Ian, you are the Spielberg fan to end all Spielberg fans. I'd love to see you Spielberg off with Quint, uh, formerly of Vanderkill News, Eric Vespi. Uh, there are people I think who know more than me. I can, you think? I can think of one or two people. Presumably Steven Spielberg. Well, yeah, he gets his career wrong sometimes. Oh, does he? Yes, he does. So you're, you're actually better than, than Spielberg. That's Have you ever corrected Steven Spielberg? No. <laughs> Have you ever known that he said something wrong and just gentlemanly let it go? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. That's good. That's good. You're a good man, Ian. Never. I thought I'd let this go get into this. I thought it was really good fun. Yeah. I, you know, um, he hasn't made a film like a kind of pure adventure film since what Tintin, mm-hmm. probably his last one. Mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of level it was at. I thought it was just really entertaining, very very fast, very. Also has other things to say as well. It's not just this kind of toothless entertainment. So I think mm. it's great. Uh, and had you read the book? I've read the book a couple of times. Yeah. Okay. I don't like the book very much. You're not uh, alone in that. From I don't. What I gather. I, yeah. It's 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 not the best written book in the world. But one thing it is is it's very Moorish. It, it has a what happens next quality to it. You really want to know what happens next. Mm-hmm. But some of the writing is so hard to get through. That Okay. Off a bit. Yeah, no, I've heard that. I've, I've read excerpts of the book. I haven't read the book myself, but I have read pages of people who posted on Twitter generally going, can you believe this? Yeah. The, and that, I mean, that's this is one of the terrible. strengths of the film is how it, A, improves on the book, 
but B makes it cinematic because the book is a lot of people standing at arcade games playing games for yeah. pages. Well, Spielberg's very good at this. I mean, James will bring you in a second as well, but Spielberg's very good at this in terms of, you know, Jaws was a bit of a airport novel. Jaws is a dreadful book. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And he managed to change that and elevate that and uh, make just enough changes from the source material to make things work. Yeah. And, you know, he, he did away with that dreadful plot where Hooper has an affair with Brody's wife. What yeah. the hell is that about? And the mafia are involved, aren't they? Oh Mer- my God, Mer- yeah. Vaughan is involved with the, the mafia. Uh, he does look very the dodgy. Law. You have to, you know, where, where does he get the money to buy that suit? Yes, with the answers <laughs> on. <laughs> That's what I want to know. Uh, you know, and, and Jurassic Park is a, is a novel I love a lot, but a lot of people would say he improved upon that as well. So he's got, he's got a, uh, he's got a, a proclivity for, for taking uh, pulp yeah. And, and, and squeezing it. it. Yeah. Elevating it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. He has. Yeah. Uh, Jimbo, what did you think of the film? I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I've, I, you know, I lo- love a bit Steven Spielberg, but I have not been hugely enamoured of his more recent things. Uh, I did not enjoy the BFG. I did not enjoy uh, The Post either, particularly. Not that it was a bad film. I just found it quite stodgy and, and, and hard to get through. Uh, this, I thought, was wonderful. Like, it took me back to, to a lot of his early films. It, it had a magic, more magical, I think, than Tintin. Uh, I think it, you know, it, it harked back to some of his most, you know, uh, nostalgic, just sheer sort of joie de vivre about it. It just made you feel alive and happy to be there and happy to be watching it. And I don't think you needed to understand the references, be they cinematic or game-related, to to enjoy the uh-huh. film. Relatable characters, it had a real human element to it. No, I thought it was great. Um, I've not read the book, though I've spoken to people who have, which is, I believe, much the same thing. <laughs> and uh, Skim read the Wikipedia page. Yeah, and from what I gather, you know, as Ian said, the people say, oh yeah, it's kind of skipped along, but it's not very well written, and you're kind of there, a lot of it, for the references. Mm. Um, and I think this film isn't just about the references, and that's a nice. I'm very pleased about that. So let's dig into that a little bit as well, because a lot of people have written into me, you know, some some sent in questions. Most are positive, some are negative about the film. I don't think everyone loves this movie. And in terms of the references, some people seem to think the danger with this movie, in terms of the references, would could have been that it, it was a Channel Five clip show. That it was just yeah. a compendium of your favourite characters coming together, but not really doing anything, not really signifying anything. But uh, you think it's it's, it didn't it's feel gone like beyond that, that to me. It didn't feel like oh, there's Dorian, oh, there's King Kong. It didn't feel like that to me. I thought it was they were kind of very tastefully and well judged in terms of how they were they were used. Mm. Um, James, did you feel that? I mean, no, no. I thought they were they were very well uh, sort of woven in. I think. Uh, I tried to sort of not count, but I tried to make a point of noticing them all as the film started. I was like, there's one, another one, another one. And then it got to the point where you were getting five or six in every shot, and it became stressful <laughs> to try and take them all in. And I just, in the end, had to stop and just let them wash over me a little yeah, bit because there's so much. It's so rich. But they're, like, they're not, they're subtly deployed. Yeah, they? They're not hit over the head with yeah, them. And you, you don't need to get if them all not. If you miss them, like, it's not going to. If you are unaware that when. Um, uh, when Artemis grabs him and pulls him uh, aside just after he becomes famous, she's Goro from Mortal, Mortal Kombat before she whips out the alien gag. You know, you've not lost anything by not knowing that. She's no. just a big four-armed monster. I did not know that. Well, there I you go. Know, I didn't know, you know that either. If you yeah. didn't know that among the weapons that they pull out are the alien's pulse rifle and yeah. the uh, the lancer from Gears of War and indeed the torque bow uh, from Gears of War turns up at one point as well. You know, all this stuff is lovely, but you need to know it. <laughs> <laughs> if you've uh, never seen a no, Battlesuit no. Gundam episode, I, I, you know. I'd be interested to know how many of these references Steven Spielberg catches. I wonder if it's his 
if it's ILM, if yeah. it's the, the writers. Yeah. I wonder, and I don't think he really cares about that. I spoke yeah. about the film. I think he's interested in this film. It's other things other than the reference. What are the things he's interested in? I think he's interested in, in the way we interact with virtual worlds and the differences between mm. real life and fantasy life and that sort of thing. I'm mm. not sure he's interested in... in Battletoads. Yeah, I, I'm I'm fully on board with that. I, the references don't really mean anything to me in this movie because there's no weight to them. There's no substance to them. It's not like your favourite characters in the universe of this movie have decided to team up. Now that would be pretty cool if if Grissom from CSI decided to team up with House from House MD and solve crimes. Then Columbo came in, this is, and this, this was that. This was that this movie. Is the most you know? prosaic version of the Oasis. <laughs> this is this is <laughs> where five USA characters turn up and gang up together. This is totally my oasis. I would love that. That's totally my oasis. Or, for example, if if Michelle Rue Jr. teamed up with John Turode. Uh, <laughs> James Martin know, turned along for James, the ride. Oh, super, supercars and Paul Hollywood and Mary Berry were there. That would be amazing. What, yes, what yeah. a great... A list of names that mean absolutely nothing to me. <laughs> and but, you just did the same to me. So it, 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 it but, you know, swings around a bit. interesting about what constitutes oasis, though. There's, there's, a, there's a piece in New Yorker that says it's a film that celebrates culture. But there's no counterculture in it. So there's no hip hop. Yes. There's no John Cassavetes characters. There's yes. no. It's like it celebrates the kind of culture that killed another culture. It's a very narrow view of pop culture. It's a very singular view. It's a very middle aged white man's view of a certain very narrow band of pop culture uh, from 1970 onwards, 19. Where's the, the references end around about 1980, 1990, something like that in yeah. the film? The game references don't, but yeah. Yeah, but there's, no, there's not a lot before 1980, is there? Yeah. Really? Precisely. Like a couple of Star Wars things. But um, not. And we were chatting a little bit beforehand about how people see this movie, and I think they see a lot of Spielberg movies as very, very sunny and very upbeat and very, you know, optimistic. Uh, I don't necessarily know that it is. I think that maybe with this movie, he is Trojan horses a little bit, a bit like the end of Minority Report or maybe the end of AI as well. Uh, in that, I don't think that this, this is necessarily a celebration of pop culture and a celebration of and the love of pop culture. I think this is in a way a bit of a ticking off uh, for people about being calcified uh, about for, for people about not growing beyond the things they loved when they were kids or the things they loved when they were teens. I'm not sure this film's on the Halliday side at so, all. Yeah, so that's where it plays into, isn't it? The yeah. Halliday character. Yeah. You know, this film's also saying that, for me anyway, this film's saying that it's lamenting the fact that pop culture ends in the universe of this movie around about, well, around about the creation of the Oasis. But as far as I can tell within the world of this movie, there is no, there are no more films being made. There is no more music being made. There are no more pop culture giants. And it's lamenting that a little bit. And I think it's lamenting a lack of creativity. Yeah. But that's what makes it fascinating, isn't it? Mm. That's why, because on the other hand, it is the kind of thrill ride that you want it to be. So I think that's what a lot of modern Spielberg does. It takes yeah. very exciting things and complicates them and yeah. makes you question them. And and yeah. and it's, it gets, that's a lot more depth than I think you give him credit for. Yeah. It's, it's having its cake and eating it, absolutely. Because yeah. at the same time, it's saying maybe don't just love stuff because it's all find new things to love find new things about the world to love yeah but at the same time look at this bit from The Shining look what <laughs> we can do yeah if it was a narrative in which characters came together and teamed up that would mean something to me but it's just a bunch of references ultimately I don't think it's a problem. I, th I think it tells a specific story and those references are in many ways incidental to that yeah um, but yeah, I mean, my, my, my thing my confusion watching this is so. What's the what's the BBFC rating for this film? Do we know? 
12? Yeah, yeah it must be a 12 because there's, there's, there's the one fuck, isn't it? That's right, there yeah. is the one fuck, which is yeah. also, frankly, fucking wasted because it's used, I, to, used to, it's, it's fucking chucky. I'm like, if yeah. you're going to drop an F bomb, that's not the, that wasn't a great use of it. I'm that sure there was a better way of that doing it. I got a big laugh at my screen. Really? Yeah, yeah a lot, that lot of people love that laugh. That's and, the biggest I mean, laugh in the film. I'm the first person to tell you swearing is both big and clever, but yeah. it didn't make me laugh that, that bit, didn't Okay. Um, but yeah. my bigger question is this is that it's who. Who's the demographic for this film? Because the story yeah, but, feels but like who, it's quite young, yeah? It feels like quite a young story. Yeah. The references are clearly aimed at middle-aged people. And yeah. yet you've got that the big elephant in the room, the shining sequence, which is incredibly intense. Like, it's yeah. really fucking full-on. So much so that, I mean, a kid would not be able to watch this film. But I don't care who it's aimed for. No, but I'm, how, does I'm that, how, does that, how does that affect your experience of it? Who are you saying for? Not in any way. I'm just yeah. genuinely curious. Like, let's with my with my you know marketing department hat on. I'm just curious who this film was pitched at. Like, who who is its target demographic? Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> well, and, but that might be the actual answer. There is a little bit for everyone. There's yeah. you know the narrative for younger people. There's references for middle aged gamers. There's references <laughs> for older horror fans. You know, yeah. there's something. Perhaps that is. Perhaps it is a universal movie. Yeah. Uh, but I think when I went into it, I thought you know this is the kind of thing that kids will really enjoy. And then when the shiny thing came in, I was like, ha, oh, this is an odd thing to reference in a kids film. And then when you yeah. saw the lift, I was like, well, clearly they're not going to do the blood. So, oh, well, they are. Now I'm confused. And I think from that point, I was on the back foot just like, because this film wasn't what I assumed it was going to be. Well, I, I was thrown by The Shining, not necessarily because how intense it was, but it just seemed a different world of geek to me. There's the world of geek of the Goonies and Back to the Future and all yeah. the things. That, and The Shining <laughs> seems another, horror films. another kind of level. <laughs> but that I wonder if it comes from from Spielberg's love of that movie or yeah. whether it... Oh. Is it a nod to his good friend Stanley Kubrick? Yeah. Was yeah. it the simply book, the book, they had the rights? The book plays with war games and with uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But that would feel much more in keeping, wouldn't Which it? Is, that's, what, that's, yeah. those, that's the scene that it's replacing in the book. But it, again, I, you know, I was kind of kidding about the rights, but was I there, kidding there, about there the rights? The Oasis is the magical world full of Warner Brothers IP. Yeah. It? I mean, it, it, yeah. It, yeah. It's... This is obliterated the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> <laughs> the Oasis. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm going to throw some questions at you from from uh, from listeners. Okay, Colin Best, 1978, asks, Any thoughts on Ogden Morrow? Was his fallout with Halliday genuine or contrived? When he conveniently reappears at the end of the film, he seems to have been part of the plan all along, despite their apparent public fallout. What, no, what's your take on I agreed with that. I thought that confused me. That he seemed to, on the one hand, fall out with him... Yeah, he seems to be buried in this world as a helper for Parzival and mm. an Artemis. So I'm not really sure what was going on there. Yeah. I think he was in on it all the time, maybe? It's hard to say. Yeah. Hard to say. We should ask Peg. Yeah. Ask Peg. Hashtag ask Peg. At J2Tha7 asks, do you think Nolan Sorrento's avatar is supposed to look like Evil Superman. Uh, presumably, this is what a wimpy bully type would assume is a powerful look in the Oasis. I mean, is he? Maybe he has. He yeah. has that. He has that square jawed, thin aesthetic going on. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily thought that at the time. Mm-hmm. I just thought he was, you know, a slightly computerized, chunky. Mm. Yeah. Insert handsome suit man. I thought Mendelssohn was uh, hands down the best thing in the movie for me. Well, maybe not hands down because Olivia Cook's very, very good as well. Yeah. But uh, I really enjoyed his performance. And I loved how incompetent Sorrento was. 
by the end, he's essentially a bumbling Cluzo, isn't he? <laughs> but which, yeah. which makes his his decision to to almost want to shoot Wade at the end seem a little bit out of character yeah. in a weird way. But uh, and then he has that moment of repentance, doesn't he? And that little smile plays in his lips. He goes, "Oh, you're all right, kid. You're okay." Yeah. Uh, which is a really corny moment, but Mendelssohn's so good that he can make that work. I enjoyed his um, the scene where he's being fed John Hughes trivia yes. into into his <laughs> into his ears from. Yes. Assemble team of geeks. Yeah, uh, because he doesn't. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get Which it. Know, the, the way he that... was. He was a, an apprentice of of Morrow and Halliday, wasn't he? We yeah. see him early on, so you would imagine he would have some kind of. But isn't the idea with him that he just he doesn't feel it? There's that that, yeah. that line: a fanboy can always tell a hater. Yeah. I mean, come on. That's great. <laughs> is it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay. I, no, I, but I get it. You know, yeah. I get it. You get people who genuinely love something and people who know a bit about it but don't really engage with it. And yeah. there is a sense of elitism yeah. and superiority between people who are on the inside and people who are on the outside. Right. Yeah. Okay. But but that also plays in, in a way to the lead characters, to everyone in this movie loves the things that James Halliday loves. Yes. But... Do they love those things only to get ahead in the game of the Oasis? No. I or do think, they genuinely love those things? I think they love those things because they love James Halliday mm. prior to the prior to this competition. Right, yeah, it's by so association. They're, they're obsessed with James Halliday in a way that um, people wear uh, the Ramones T-shirts but don't yes. necessarily know the Ramones. And the guess where you, you talked about on our ranking podcast as well, that you got into De Palma and Scorsese because yeah. of Spielberg yeah, initially. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. So you find out what your idol loves and, and you, love it. you stalk that as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so you, and some of those things stick with you and some of those things yeah. don't stick with you. So Halliday's a gateway drug. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, he opens the the door, and then you 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 know yeah, the shining and all sorts out. of stuff. The eighties mm. tumble out. Yeah, yeah. Semekis cube. Yeah, I love that. Did you? How great is a Semekis? It's a Semekis mm. cube. It's a oh. film that has a confidence to say it's a, it's a whole thing. And it has a little bit Robert of Semekis. Yeah, <laughs> it's Robert Semekis. <laughs> and it plays a little bit of the Back to the Future score when it happens. Come on, oh, yeah. Does it? Yeah, oh, a little bit that. of Sylvester when he when he uses it. There's a lot. Oh, really? There's a lot of Back to the Future musical nods and twists and yeah. Oh, and so 1941, yeah. that was my favourite moment in the whole film. There's a 1941 musical riff. Oh, really? Oh, that thought, I wow. That was, that was my, my, my favourite uh, Easter egg. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's when they turn up, when the high five turn up after they've all won the competition, the first uh-huh. key, key they all come to that square, and there's a little bit of 1941 score. Oh, that's nice. That lifted my heart. That was there just for you, Ian. <laughs> so, um, what do we make of the? Because the, there, there are three challenges. the The first one is that that is, accelerating backwards DeLorean car chase. Yeah, which I ne- I, I never liked the look of that in the trailer. That never grabbed me, but I thought on screen looked terrific. What the just the car chase in general? Yeah, just mm. so exciting. Yeah, it was nuts. Really great. And the idea of reversing backwards was fun to me as well. I thought that's a yeah. nice nice way of doing it. Yeah. That was fun. And even on the level of a car chase, I don't, I'm not saying I spotted the A-Team van and the Batmobile and all that stuff. Just yeah. the level of a car mm. is a, a, a spectacle. Yeah. I just Terrific. love the idea that he would hang at the back so he can nick the coins from all the pilots that wiped out. Well, that's that's exactly something you would do. It is it? exactly yeah. the kind of thing that I have done in, uh, <laughs> in online games where I just hang around on the edges of the fight and then loot yeah. the bodies of the fallen. <laughs> yes, that's me. Never play video games with James Dyer, as I learned my cost many, many years ago. Yeah. I've avoided that ever since. Although I would kick your ass at FIFA. Until you, you until you the, learned it. That's because there are no roofs for you to fall off. <laughs> Precisely. Um, but yeah, that's a really fun sequence, and uh, with the DeLorean and driving. Uh, the, once it 
once he starts driving backwards, that, that really grabbed me. That's yeah, because I thought it was really see, fun. Yeah, and you can see the world above him. Yeah, yeah. beautifully staged. Uh, and as a Spielberg fan, what, what, what does Spielberg bring to this? Obviously, he he loves to play in this this arena, the volume yeah. where he can put his camera anywhere. Yeah, I just but you, you get the the kind of brilliance that you get from anywhere wherever the kind of medium he's in. Mm-hmm. So the example, if if you look at the start of the film, when the Ambient Entertainment logo comes up, mm-hmm. Van Halen's jump starts, and then it goes into this whole thing where the opening shot mirrors the lyrics of Van Halen mm-hmm. so when the uh, uh, when you roll with the punches there's somebody punching and that might sound contrived but every little thing is worked out on one single camera shot that's magic oh. and that's the only kind of thing you get with Steven Spielberg that sort of thing or when they come into the square and there's trumpets playing on their own do you remember that there's, yeah. like, when he wins yeah. the game there's a kind of whole orchestra that hasn't got anybody playing it uh-huh. that's just a kind of vision invention only Steven Allen Spielberg can give you <laughs> <laughs> Steven Allen S.A.S. um <laughs> So, uh, how did you feel about the real world versus the Oasis uh, segment? I, what, I, what the, my biggest surprise of the film was I really didn't expect to root for people who look like characters from that Final Fantasy film. Yeah. And they kind of do for me, and I did. I cared about Parzival, I cared about Artemis. The floaty hair gag was nice, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I just thought I wouldn't care about that, I thought I wouldn't really get that, but I did. I thought yeah. they, they were great in, in the... In the races. I really cared for them. The Saturday Night yeah. Fever dance at the Distracted Globe was great. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's kind of interesting because uh, I think Ty Sheridan's a very, very good actor. I don't think he's given a lot to work with here no. in the real world. Uh, I like the fact that he looks like young Stephen Spielberg. He does, doesn't he? Yeah. He Which, really does. Yeah. yeah. It's and I think British freaky. audiences get a kick from Finchie from The Office being in it as well. There was, <laughs> there was a lot yeah. of Finchie from The Office murmurs. Yeah. <laughs> in that dreadful onesie with that horrendous mullet being, yeah. being just the worst human being alive. <laughs> but I, I don't think Ty Sheridan gets a lot to work with apart from looking like no. young Spielberg uh, in the real world. And weirdly enough, I prefer the I do prefer the real world stuff to the Oasis stuff. Okay. But I pr- prefer his character in The Oasis. But I think Olivia Cook is fantastic as well. Yeah, and yeah. again, I mean, it's interesting. They really chime down the birthmark thing in the book. She has a really big birthmark. Yeah, and we have a they, question about that. Actually. They kind of chimed it down to the point was, why did you really worry about it? Why mm. do it if you're yeah. going to just have a little birthmark? Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's not exactly. Don't look at me. <laughs> yeah. I, I am hideous. Yeah, you, I can, can't. You can comb no. your hair and cover it up a bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a bloke. There's a book later on. They they track them down the real world by tracking a bloke with a tattoo on his face which is way more noticeable <laughs> than Olivia Cook's birthmark yeah which is maybe yeah I thought she was terrific and, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah she's, she's, she's so great, great. Yeah. She's got she's got real cest, but she's also brilliant at the deadpan stuff. Yeah, and I really rooted for her when she was trying to escape from IOI and that whole sequence where she was actually playing in the game mm. as a sort of you know she was uh, on the inside and mm. creeping around the back of Sorrento's chair. Yeah, which which feels like such a sort of goofy family friendly beat. Yeah, in this in this movie, yeah. I, I really enjoyed that. I think I she's, his chair she's was fantastic. a masterstroke. How great I, was that chair? Such a great chair. I love the yeah. fact that he has his password written down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like he's meant to be the CEO or whatever it is of this huge, huge company. And it was like boss man as well, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't too far away from War Machine Rocks. But we did have a question about that. But uh, but the, did you think that the movie set up the rules of the universe uh, sufficiently? Well, Not just the the rules of the of the the game itself, but the idea that there was that this company IOI was dominating the world and were, was imprisoning people who were getting into debt in the game. Yeah. Because I've seen, I've seen some so people I, have had have issues with that. Yeah. 
Well, I think it's a commentary on the state of the gaming industry, quite frankly, uh, because the gaming industry has, over the last 10 years or so, turned into a great big corporate sausage factory uh, where everything is about extorting money out of people, where you will pay a premium amount for a game, but then it'll be sort of like you'll pay to win, that's full of in-app purchases. It does feel like making games for art's sake has been overtaken by sort of overt, very sort of crass commercialization, And I felt there was an element of that to this. I also like the roguelite element, the fact that they have one life in their oasis, one life, and when they're yeah. dead, that's it. There's yeah. no second chances. And that was an interesting mechanic. Well, you that, lose that, everything you've accumulated. Well, that brings that gives the stakes. Uh, it was interesting that Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, uh, went with that three lives conceit, which which meant it could kill some of its characters in really fun and interesting ways, but it also did bring it up the stakes because suddenly oh. everyone has only one life left and if they lose their life, although you know you know deep inside they're never going to, but they yeah. could die for real. And it's the same thing in this one. If you know if you lose your life, if you give your life away as um, uh, Artemis does at the end, it's a big moment. It's a it's a big sacrifice. It's a big gesture. And I love the way that was actually depicted visually as well and that you you know, almost literally dissolve into a pile of coins that mm. can then be hoovered up by other yeah. people. Uh, I thought the film dead. had it's probably the film with the most voiceover at the beginning since Casino, isn't it? You're, kind of, you're told the amount of information yeah. you have to take in. Exposition. But I've read yeah. that book twice, boned up for a feature about it, and I think you might struggle if you if you come in blind to that to find figure out the, yeah. the, the rules of the stacks versus the Oasis and yeah. the inner workings of the Oasis. It's just it's very complicated. I'm not a huge fan of the screenplay in which a character refers to his aunt as my mom's sister. It's like yeah, the line isn't you killed my mom's sister. It's you killed my aunt. But be angry about it. You're allowed to be angry about it. It's fine. They did a masterful job of condensing the basic idea behind yeah. this movie into that. Yeah, uh, very smart. Yeah. Just get it out of the way. Info dump. And then yeah. on we go. You ready? Sitting down? Yeah. Okay, now we can begin. It's not as elegant as Mr. DNA in Jurassic Park, but it is very well done. <laughs> it is, you know. Can you imagine if it had been the same guy? That'd be funny, wouldn't it? That's, dead now, isn't he? Isn't yeah. he dead, Mr. But DNA? You, you could have brought the character you back. Could bring him you? back, yeah. Yeah. It's Oasis. It needs to be more, more Steven Spielberg in this, in this, uh, in the, in in the Oasis. Universe, yeah. Lots of Steven Spielberg produced references, but not a lot of Steven Spielberg directed references, unless no. I missed a whole bunch. In. No, there's not many. There's a few Mogwais on the wall of things and a. Again, uh, yeah. Just, yeah. The, the book, yeah, yeah. Cool. No, in terms of actual directorial things, no, there's not a lot. He cut out um, references in the book to the Holy Trilogy hmm. about Indiana Jones, which I thought was very you. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Blimey. Uh, we've got some more questions though from from listeners. So this one comes from Mr. Ken Shabby, uh, John Rain. If you don't listen to the brilliant Smirsh Pod, then do so. Yes. Uh, skip the License to Kill episodes. So, uh, some absolute raging idiot is on those uh, those episodes. But uh, John asks this, and I wanted to ask this question to you, Ian, because uh, as the Uber Spielberg fan yes. in this, I want to get your take on it. Uh, he says, wouldn't it have been better to have the grey? depressing, muddy-looking world that Janusz Kaminski offers as Spielberg's DP for the real world and then have a technicolour, colourful world for the Oasis a la The Wizard of Oz. Uh, basically, uh, John has a big thing about Janusz Kaminski. I think it kind of does do that, especially when it starts. The you first think... time you go into Oasis, you go through that wave. Right. The camera dives through the wave. It's beautiful. It's so colourful. Uh-huh. Um, but I get the point that, you know, you want distinct worlds. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was you, a great. You probably don't at want all. it to be Wreck It Ralph, though, do you? 
you know, you you want it to have a level of of if not realism, but a cinematic <laughs> quality to the inside world. Because if it was all like Cuba hopping about and it's all in primary colours, it's you're going to lose some of the impact of the story. Yeah, I guess, I guess. So you don't agree that uh, that's, it's, that's it's his, a dull wash. No. He's run his course with Janusz Kaminski that he needs to get a new DP. No. <laughs> no, I'm very happy with Janusz Kaminski. John Rain, seat inferior after class. Yes, yes. Lewis Clark asks, what's the first thing you'd buy in the Oasis? The physical stuff. Because like, you can buy the in-game stuff, and if you die, you've lost. But you can buy stuff they just ship you in real life, like that cool suit thing. So all of that. Because then it doesn't matter how many times you die, you've still got a super suit. I'd buy Zemeckis Cube. Of course you would. What's it, Zemeckis? Of course you would. I'd buy... I love the fact that this film had three separate Aliens references in it, and I would buy all three of them. The Sulaco, <laughs> the Pulse Rifle, and the Chestburster. Yeah. There's um, silent running references as well. Yeah. Who's catching that? Yeah. That's amazing. You need to see it again about a dozen times to get all those references. The yeah, Terminator 2 one, while being very obvious, I very much enjoyed. Oh, yeah. The upraised thumb yeah. when the Iron Giant goes yeah. into the lava. That's that was a lot of fun. Like that. that was a lot of fun. Uh, all right, here we've got another question from uh, FUMAC86. I thought the idea to bring forward the reveal of the real Sam made sense. It made us care more about what happened to her and Artemis. But did you think that made the whole love story feel very rushed and slightly odd? Uh, and then someone else asked, and I'm sorry, I don't have that question, but in relation to that, that uh, it's Artemis, and again, I haven't read the book, but it's Wade who gets arrested in the book, and Artemis gets arrested here. So that's a bit of a change. So, yeah, that, I think one, so she gets more to do, and you know, it's, it's yeah. not what the film doesn't do. It doesn't. The, the book has a bit of a bit of a zhuzh around the re- revelation of the real life people. So we don't know who H is until very late in the book, mm. and we don't meet Artemis, Samantha, very late in the book. But I spoke to Zach Penn and uh, Olivia Cook about this. And the feeling was is that she'd become like a manic pixie dream girl if you mm. only ever saw her in the Oasis. She'd be this kind of geek, wank fantasy. Mm. So they decided to bring in the real person to give her weight and heft and a, being a multidimensional human being earlier. Mm. I think that's a smart move, I think. But there is a danger of that already with Wade. I mean, he, he's, he seems to think that he's in love with her very, very quickly. Yeah, but that's being young, isn't it? Yeah. Because she has a hot avatar. I mean, all done I mean, we've, all we've all been there. You're walking through Ratchet and a hot night elf comes up to you. She puts on the moves and then you turn out. She's like some bloke from Swansea called Steve. And it's just but you're committed. really awkward. But you're already committed. You're in. You've already joined a guild with him. And, you yeah. know, it, frankly, you're basically shacked up together. And uh, how, Who is Steve? Not how is to? Steve these days? Are you OK? Are yeah, you all right? Yeah, yeah, he's good. We've not seen each other since, uh, you know, uh, the Burning Crusade. But other than that, yeah. We'll, we'll always have Outland together. <laughs> um, uh, let's talk about the second the second challenge. The third challenge is is fine and it is fun, but I think the second challenge is the thing that people come out of this movie talking about, and certainly we've had a lot of questions about it, which is, and we've, we've mentioned it already, but The Shining. Yeah. And, uh, which is, for me, absolutely the standout sequence from the film, the yeah, most successful joy, sequence from the film. Such yeah, such a joy. I the detail with which it's absolutely represented. Absolutely how you remember it, isn't it? Mm. That's, you know, I haven't seen The Shining for a while. But I mean, they recreated it physically, didn't they? I mean, yeah, 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 that, that hotel lobby is extraordinary. I was, I was there in September uh, at the hotel because I went to Halloween Horror Nights and they'd recreated it as one of the horror mazes. Uh, right. Very, very well, I might add. So, yes, it was, uh, yeah, it brought back some kind of Nam esque flashbacks for me. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's really good. The maze is great. The hallway, it's like I said, I was really shocked by, like, they pulled no punches. Like, Blood in the Corridor shocked me. And then the bath sequence really shocked me. Yeah. Because yeah. it's very full on, you know, her with the knife. And it's, you know, 
It is very graphic. Yeah, I mean, they, they, yeah, they didn't go full uh, evil old hag nudity, but close enough. I think you get a, a evil old hag arse in in that in that sequence. It brings its own gamification to the to, yeah. the, to the, the shining as well. So then you have, you know, you, you never see Jack Nicholson, but you do see see his axe. And I, it would have been nice. I, I think Hi. probably the one thing they would have would have loved to have done, but probably couldn't, was have. What, do you mean like a, a Princess Leia Rogue One? Yeah, get young Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been quite fun, but it was uh, it was that that was the moment where I really felt that you could really feel that there was some uh, reference from Spielberg, but also an, an irreverence from him as well. Yeah, those two sides, that sort of dichotomy, really playing uh, at play there. I, re- I thought it was yeah. a fantastic sequence. And I'm I'm just upset that reviewers seem so happy to blazon it about, just to mention it willy nilly, as if you know. It was such a joy to discover it, if you didn't know yeah. it. I knew about it going in because someone had spoiled it from, I think, did it play at SXXW? Yeah, it did, yeah. Yeah, it so, there. Yeah, so, yeah. so there, there were tweets uh, after the SXSW sequence where people went, oh my God, screening where people went, oh my God, there's an amazing sequence from The Shining. And I was like, oh, okay, great, yeah. thanks. Yeah. But this is a spoiler podcast, so we can talk yeah. about that but sort this, of stuff I mean, you, you raise a valid point, but this is an ongoing issue with reviews generally, isn't it? That I think it's too far. It's like a lot of... Uh, film critics do put plot points in reviews which are a little bit irresponsible. Like, I don't ever read reviews of films I haven't seen because I won't take the chance that it'll ruin it. I think going in sight unseen is, is not often a good thing to do. But you read reviews to see whether or not you should go and see a film. So as a reviewer, to a certain extent, you do have to be very careful not to do something that will spoil someone's enjoyment of it. It's a fine line to walk. Yeah, I used to be really careless about that sort of stuff. Uh, really careless. But now I'm hopefully a little bit more careful about that. If I were writing a review of Ready Player One, I would probably stop at there's an amazing sequence mm. in the second. Yeah. Uh, there's an amazing sequence at some point in the film that riffs on an old film Yeah, from, you know, Mm. From ye olde times, 1980. Yeah. Can you yeah. imagine? Can you imagine? Uh, but I wouldn't identify the film and I wouldn't mm. say what happens. I think you have to be very, very careful about that. But now we're, you know, this will be out two weeks after the film's out. Yeah, we're so fine. I think, yeah, I think we should be okay. But let's talk about uh, James Halliday, uh, played by his new BFF, Mark Rylance. The big friendly gamer. It's <laughs> good. Yeah. Uh, the BFG. Uh, what do we think of, of Rylance in this movie? What do we think of Halliday's role in this movie? And what do we think that, that Halliday is at the end? What was his handle in the game? Was it a Norak? Was that what he went by? It was Anorak, wasn't yeah, it? But Anorak, pronounced yeah. in a kind of, you know, <laughs> slightly Lord Anorak. That's yeah. good. Uh, I like that. Yeah, it was nice. Uh, what do we think he is at the end? Do we think he's alive somehow? Uh, is there magic involved? Is there somehow, uh, is, are we delving at the realms of the supernatural, as someone has asked? No, I don't think so. I think he's. It's his, the game is his legacy. Yeah. The, the contest is his legacy, and he's dead. I'm quite certain about that. Okay. It didn't seem to, it didn't seem to me that the film was positing anything else. Mm-hmm. He, he he is asked directly, "What are you? Are you alive? Or are you dead?" And he says something in between. He's he's like an echo of it. Like he's he's been programmed by the and who's by the guy who's poured a lot of himself into this kind of subroutine or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So I guess he's a shadow of of the guy he was. An interesting uh, performance from Ryan. Yeah. It's kind of playing that really trod down, mm. kind of nerdy. And again, yeah, I don't necessarily know that he's playing him as someone who's lovable. He's someone who found love really, really hard to come by and yeah. kind of almost feels like it's something he doesn't compute. He can't compute love. He can't compute emotions. He can't compute relationships with real people. So he creates this thing that then goes on to destroy popular culture. <laughs> and and it's, you know, it's, a, it's a bad thing for the world itself. So I'm, again, this goes back to what I was saying about, I think that Spielberg's Trojan, Trojan horse in this here. And you, you think it's actually a bit of a warning about 
for yeah, VR as well. Absolutely, yeah. But it's enslavement in a world that has holy hand grenades. My friend pointed out to me that the Oasis has taken over the whole world. But the five best players are in Ohio, Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> They're all conveniently within <laughs> 10 miles yeah. of each other. Yeah. How convenient that that would be the case. Uh, yeah, I, I did slightly bristle at that a little bit. But I guess, but let's point, the movie's m- momentum is taking over. You've got to just go with it. Well, of course they all live within five blocks of each other. Of course they do. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying about the, uh, does the film establish the rules enough? Uh, you know, that the I- IOI are really evil company that are enslaving people in labor camps yeah which, and so which what I, separates... I've, read, I've read some allegories you know some spielberg's harking back to shinner's list a little bit that he's he's aware of that and it's that's mm. part of the fabric of it yeah it is, he's taking that seriously so let's talk about the, the really really quickly we'll talk about the final challenge the third challenge the the idea that you have to lose a game in order to win a game which is basically how i play the game in many ways, you win all the games that way. Yeah, I, I you know, it's a, I'm playing the long game. I like that visual of all those people lining up and just falling through the ice every time they get it wrong. <laughs> I enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. I'll just wrap it up with a couple of quick questions. Uh, so, at Ellen Case forty seven asks, do you think Ready Player Two will be all nineties references? Uh, and that kind of feeds into a, a larger question about will there be a sequel, and if there, you know, or or is this one of those movies that's better? I know this is a really weird thought these days, but better as a standalone movie. Well, there's a sequel to the book coming. That's coming mm-hmm. at Christmas. What's it called? I don't know yet. It, okay. If it's not called Ready Player Two, what, what is the world coming to, <laughs> frankly? Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think, I don't think it would... I think you're right. I think it would work. It works great as a standalone film. We, we kind of had fun with it. We enjoyed it. Uh, do we want to spend more time in the Oasis? What, what are we going to get more from that? Mm. I don't know. I can't imagine that Steven would, Steven Spielberg would direct another one. I hope that there is a sequel, and I hope it's uh, with Wade Watts entangled in legal red tape for two hours, and it's just meetings with lawyers. And yep. Aaron Sorkin will write the screenplay. Okay, so it's called Wade's Game. Good. Okay. I like this, yeah. You like this, like where I'm going with this? Yeah. And it's just two hours of conference room meetings and boardroom meetings, yep. and then at the end, he, he switches on the Oasis picks up the joypad and we never see what happens after, after, after that <laughs> and then Helen gives it three stars in the magazine yes. and then James gets angry and it refers to it constantly as a four star masterpiece Wade's game on the podcast yeah yeah. Sheridan Chastain <laughs> Sheridan Chastain I'm absolutely I'm bang up for that that's going to be great right. um, alright okay this is our last question this is from at Mark is very cool Mark, that's a very, very cool name. Yeah. Uh, many of Steven Spielberg's films have influenced other filmmakers, started trends, formed tropes, and changed the cinematic landscape. I think Steven Spielberg has written this tweet. But what influence, if any, do you think Ready Player One will have on future cinema? Does it make the world of virtual reality more appealing? Does it kind of normalise that a little bit in ways that hasn't been done before? That's interesting, because obviously this is a holy grail in many ways for Hollywood. It's the thing that they've been, they're, they're really trying to work towards. Uh, and, you know, the idea in this movie that pop culture kind of ends when the Oasis begins may not be that far-fetched because yeah. you get the feeling that if they do crack VR, then the filmmakers who are able to work within the realms of VR and work within the 360 world will thrive. Yeah. And anyone else who likes to work within the proscenium or anyone else who works who likes to work in 2D <laughs> or or cling to their cans rules of film I like Chris, Chris Nolan yeah Chris <laughs> Nolan yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like Chris Nolan the only person who still uses 1471 <laughs> 
It's, just, it's true, though. Um, I wonder how many people will Lucas actually film? get that. <laughs> That's great. Anyway, anyway. I've got something else to say. Will, will yeah. the takeaway from this film be 80s references make money, let's make loads of films with loads of 80s references in? 80s, 90s and noughties references. Yeah, mm-hmm. will, will, it, will we get a lot of films yeah. that, that live in the world of pop culture yeah. and celebrate that? Yeah. Could that be a takeaway from this? Absolutely. But then also, are filmmakers going to, uh, you know, like I say, are those filmmakers going to fade away into the distance and will film, will cinema... Uh, as 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 an entity ceased to exist because of this movie, Ian. What has Spielberg done? Okay. What has he done? What has he done? Right. Well, wide ranging implications then for the future of cinema itself yes. and VR. Amazing, but not podcasts. Thank God. Uh, that is it for our Ready Player One. Spoiler special. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. There is also going to be a spoiler special this week for A Quiet Place with John Krasinski, the film's writer, director, yeah, star. Everybody has to go and see The Quiet Place because it's terrific. It is absolutely yes. amazing. So go see that film and uh, and then come and listen to our spoiler special. Put the headphones on though so that nothing bad hears you and tries to kill you. Uh, until we meet again, it is goodbye from Ian Freer. Goodbye. It's goodbye from James Dyer. Game over. <laughs> See? Yeah, he's one up, one up. Always. Ridiculous. Mm, mm, mm. He's Ridiculous. always one step ahead. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. I am off into the Oasis, and I tell you what I would do in the Oasis. I've really I've thought about it. I would bring Liam and Noel back together again. Wow. Oasis in the Oasis. Oasis. Have I just blown your mind, Ian? You have. <laughs> <laughs> I could know the wish to end. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. 